Thank you for such a great week, kids, shining Jesus' light. Parents, grandparents, everyone involved this week, thank you for entrusting the kids to us this week. Thanks for all the people who jumped in and helped. I pray it was a really meaningful week. And kids, thanks for helping lead us in worship. So one of the big deals around here at Eagle Church is investing in the next generation from Ignite Camp to VBS to mission trips to all the stuff that goes on in the lower level and in the loft and middle schoolers are heading on up to their service uh, today. But we're not just a church for the next generation, we're a church for all generations. And I felt like on 4th of July weekend, I wanted to introduce you to a fellow church family member. It's 97 years young, second petty officer from the United States Navy, a World War II veteran, Frank Everett. You see it? So, Mr. Frank, uh, why don't you tell the folks uh, who you served with and what role you had in the armed forces, good and close. Well, I was uh, in the Navy, and uh, I was second-class seaman, and uh, I was a radio man on a torpedo bomber. I served three years and uh, got out when they dropped an atomic bomb. That kind of ended things, didn't it, Bob? That kind of was the... That was the finale right there, right, Frank? Yeah. Well, Frank, we wanted to honor you today. We wanted to say thank you to you. Also, I love spending time with Frank for a lot of reasons, but there's just some perspective that comes from 97 years, right? This will be his, he'll turn 98 in October, so his 97th 4th of July weekend. And I asked Frank maybe to say a couple words about when he looks at our country and he sees what's going on in our nation from his perspective, what are some things you're concerned about? Well, uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, last generation thought we was going to go to pot, but <laughs> it don't look like we have. We're still here. So. <laughs> That's what the generation before you told you, right? Right, right. That's about it. <laughs> but you told me earlier you were concerned about something you see going on in our country. Tell them what you told me earlier. Oh, uh, it's killing each other pretty bad. I don't know where it's going to end. I asked him, I said, what are you concerned about? He looked at our nation. I said, well, we keep killing each other. That's what he says. That's a good point, right? That's a problem. And then, Frank, talk about what gives you hope a sense of confidence that as a country, we're going to get through everything we're going through. Because you've seen us go through a lot, right? Nine plus decades of life, you've seen a lot. Serving in a world war, had a beautiful wife of 70 years, you've seen a lot. You've been through a lot. What gives you confidence we're going to get through this as a nation? Oh, we always have. Uh, I have a lot of hope that things will turn out right. Hmm. That's right. And this is his son, Bob. Remember, remember that stone that you had Hope wrote on? Yeah. Tell him about that. Tell him what happened with that stone. Uh, it's just a little round stone and then Hope across it. You wrote Hope. Do you guys remember? Those of you around Easter weekend, do you remember our Easter week? We all had rocks up here on the stage. you remember you guys came up and wrote different words on it? Bob wasn't 
or Frank wasn't able to get out that week, and so we took Easter service to his house. And his son Bob and I sat there, and we talked about Easter week, and I brought him a rock and a Sharpie marker, and he, he had a little, he got a little spillage on the pants, so he said he brought his hope pants today. That's the, <laughs> for that, right? But the hope and the confidence, right, that right. we're going to get through this together. And tell him what happened this week. You went and got your haircut. Can I show him your haircut? <laughs> he went and got a haircut this week, and while, while he's getting his haircut, tell him what happened during your haircut. I went to sleep, and uh, by the time I woke up, well, he didn't cut it all off. <laughs> <laughs> but you said when you were going to pay for your haircut, what happened? Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Uh, the fellow was in the chair before me and well, paid for my haircut. And I didn't know who was it paid for. He just walked out, walked out the door. And Bob, maybe you could say a couple words about what you experience when you're out with your dad and he's got this hat on. And We'll take him out to eat, and by golly, uh, if he's got his hat on like he's got it on today, uh, we've had probably a half a dozen people pay for our lunch. Uh, my brother was in town, and he's a veteran also, and they went out to eat, and three people got arguing because all three of them wanted to pay for our lunch. <laughs> it won't ever happen for me, but it does <laughs> Well, second Petty Officer Frank Everett, we just want to celebrate and say thank you for your sacrifice, for your commitment. When we reflect on our nation this weekend, it's lives like you and service like you've provided that enable us to have the freedoms that we have. And so on behalf of your church family, we just wanted to say thank you. Frank Everett. <laughs> if you haven't had a chance to have a conversation with Frank and Bob before, you know he's one of the earliest arrivers to church. Bob, I'm going to leave this with you there if you take oh, it on the way up. He's one of the earliest arrivers. So he gets here like 9.20 or so, and he sits out and has some coffee out there, and several of you are in Frank and Bob's coffee crew, but um, you can enjoy, have a cup of coffee and sit with Frank and chat about the things that he's holding on to, right? What a gift it is. I think he is the oldest current member of the Eagle Church family. Isn't that encouraging? At 97, going on 98, so. Well, open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, I want us to look at a passage. I've entitled today's message, Prioritizing Presence. Prioritizing Presence. And I want us to look at a passage that God raised up a man named David to step in to a time in the nation of Israel when the nation was going down a road that God was really concerned about. The language today, might, we might say the nation was drifting. The nation was kind of struggling. The nation wasn't handling things the way God wanted it handled. And so God selected a man named David, and he commissioned him to do some things. And in David's response to this leadership, I want us to see some things about how God steps in to a country. On a weekend when we pause and we step back and we reflect and we think about our nation, so much to be grateful about, but I think you would agree with me, no lack of things to be concerned about. And so what would God perhaps insert at a time like this? I think 2 Samuel 6, David's leadership, be a bridge to us in 2023 
today. So look at 2 Samuel 6, verse 12. We'll get started here. Now King David was told, so David is the second king. Who's the first king of the nation of Israel? Saul is. Those of you who've been in Eagle Kids world, you know that the kids go through Genesis to Revelation every three years, and they work their way through the kings, and they talk about from Saul to David, this transition, from the first king of Israel to the second. That's the part of the story we're in here. So David, the, David is told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because, underlined in your Bibles, because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. City of David is Bible language for Jerusalem, all right? So the ark of the covenant is a key part of the storyline here of God's people. Here's a picture of the ark of the covenant. I put it in your notes there. It's basically, it's a, it's a construction of a physical piece that represented, I want you to think ark of God equals presence of God. And it had two angelic figures right at the top. They were like, they're called cherubim, angels, that are framing the space called the mercy seat at the, right between their wings. Now, the ark itself was about four feet in length, a little over two feet in depth and width. It was made of wood. It was plated with gold. And that mercy seat was kind of the center, was made of solid gold. Now, there are three things inside the ark of the covenant. And I put these, I think, in your notes for you. It was made of, it had tablets of stone from Mount Sinai inside the Ark of the Covenant. That represented how God had commanded them. The second thing it had, had a jar of manna from the wilderness wanderings. That represented how God had provided for them. And the third thing was Aaron's rod. It had a portion of Aaron's rod and it represented how God had saved them. Do you see that? So the Ark of the Covenant had Sinai, it had wilderness wanderings, it had Aaron's rod representing how God commanded them, how God provided for them, how God had saved them. The ark literally kept this reality before the people of God. It says Israel is God's people, Jerusalem is God's city, and David now is God's king. The ark of God represented the presence of God to the people of God for the glory of God. Now, here's the, here's the tension point all this. For 42 years under Saul's leadership, the ark of God had been on the outskirts of town. No, I'll say that again. For 42 years, under Saul's entire reign, the ark of God was just kind of in the background. It wasn't front burner. It had been pressed out of the way for other priorities. It had been kind of forgotten. It actually spent some time in the hands of a neighboring nation, a hostile nation named the Philistines. It spent years in Philistine captivity. And that didn't seem to disturb the leadership at that time. They were kind of aware of where the ark of God was. It wasn't they were just like want to be completely dismissive of the presence of God. It just wasn't top shelf priority anymore. There were more pressing things for the nation. That's what, For 42 years under Saul's leadership. And this is the transition point now. And that reveals something about us as humans, right? There's something in the human condition that when things are going well, when we're comfortable and we're prosperous, here's something about the human condition. We tend to drift away from the centrality of the presence of God. 
we just get distracted, we get caught up, we tend to feel quite confident that we're going to rely on ourselves because things are going so well and the nation is doing well, and we just kind of, we let the ark drift to the outskirts of town, kind of on the periphery, even maybe in the hands of the Philistines. Eugene Peterson tells the story, if you don't know who Gene Peterson is, he translated the Message Bible. He's like a pastoral mentor to a lot of us pastors, kind of what Billy Graham was to the nation, Eugene Peterson was to a generation of pastors. He passed away a few years ago. And I never met Eugene Peterson, but he was one of my mentors through his writings and his teachings. And in one of his writings, Eugene tells the story of being invited by the lead chaplains of the United States Armed Services to the Pentagon. Peterson gets invited to the Pentagon because the lead chaplains of the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines wanted to meet with him. And so, of course, he took the invitation. He travels to Washington, D.C. He goes to the Pentagon. He sits around a table with the lead chaplains from the armed forces, and they all begin to open up a storyline to him. That in wartime situations, the chaplains were like the most demanded entity when a colonel was forming his core group. He would often be asking, because it was wartime, he was like, where's the chaplain? We need a chaplain. The chaplain's got to be centered to this. Well, they invited Peterson because they've been in a long stretch of peacetime when they invited him. There hadn't been a lot of war going on. There hadn't been challenges as much anymore. And so the, the leaders, the military leaders were discussing how to cut back the chaplaincy program. They were going to kind of lower its funding, lower its priorities, and dismiss and not have it as centrally involved. And Peterson talked about, he wrote this, he says, when the bullets are flying and the bombs are exploding, every colonel demands to have a chaplain. But the longer we're in peacetime, the greater the pull to drift from God and rely on ourselves. And then he wrote this paragraph, I put it in your notes. Peterson, reflecting on this experience, said, quote, humility recedes as leadership advances. The role of a leader almost inevitably replaces the role of follower. Instead of continuing as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we become bosses on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we are very good bosses, looking out for the welfare of our employees, and other times barely disguised, pious bullies. So that latter part is where King Saul and the Israelites were for 42 years when they allowed the ark of God to drift to the outskirts of town captured by the Philistines. And now David steps in. The transition has been given. I'll give you the backstory in a minute, but it's been a seven-year gap from the time that Saul was dethroned. Basically, Saul, you're no longer king. David, you're king. There was a seven-year gap. We're not the only nation that sometimes struggles with transitions from one group to the next. That's what was going on in Israel. And so David steps in to this space to lead. And verse 13 is what he does here. When those who were carrying the ark had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Now, there's a backstory there because they weren't handling the ark very well, and some people had died when they touched it inappropriately. That's a story for another day. But David's like, look, I know there's a history here. I know the ark of God equals the presence of God, houses the glory of God. Like, you just roll in casually. Casualness and ark don't go together. There need to be reverence and holiness and worship and commitment. So David's like, okay, six steps. That's about as far as we need to go. Let's make sure we're clean again. How about that? Six steps, clean. Six steps, clean. So he's a long opposite end of casualness. I don't picture Saul was particularly preoccupied with those things, which is why those who were trying to handle it 
uh, were dying when they mishandled it. And so look now what happened, verse 14. David, wearing a linen ephod, underline that, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and with sounds of trumpet. Now jump down to verse 17. They, but they brought the ark of God and set it in its place inside, underlined the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. So this is a seven-year preparation. So it had been seven years since Saul was placed, said, Saul, your kingship is ending. David is stepping in. And when the second king is anointed to take the throne while the first king is still alive and in power, there might be a few tensions. Good thing we don't know about those things going on. But just imagine if that was the case. And so David has a seven-year gap because Saul's son jumps in the throne, starts holding the palace, and it's super complicated. There's a lot of elements going on here. And David, for seven years, his group of leaders, his cabinet around him have been praying and preparing for his inauguration, for his coronation parade. (laughs) Picture that. For seven years, they had a lot of time to prep. I promise you those in charge of David's wardrobe were not thinking the linen ephod was at the top of the list for the king. Here's a picture of the linen ephod, all right? I want you to see this. The linen ephod is Bible language for the priest's tidy whities Okay, that's what the priest would wear under the outer ephod. David's talking about the priestly underwear, And he's wearing this. Now, stay with me. Don't get distracted. Kids, you thought you were the only ones running around your tidy whities all the time. Here's king of the nation of Israel stepping into his inauguration coronation parade, leading at the front a worship gathering in a priest's tidy whities. Come on now. Somebody's missing that whole thing. And they had seven years to prep for this. So instead of the king robed in royalty, he's clothed in a priest's underwear. And they're in there singing a song. David says, I've got a song for this parade. Here's the song they're singing, Psalm 24, verse 7 8. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Now pause right there. I promise you the crowds were like, yes, King David, you are the king of glory. King David, you are the king of glory. David chooses a song that this is the line. He says, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. He is the king of glory. Like, wait, what? The theme song of the coronation parade is about the glory of the King of Kings, capital K, and David's in his priestly underwear to assume lowercase k under uppercase k. Come on now, that's the kind of leadership God's looking for to turn something around. He's going to turn the nation around because he's got God's man to go at the front of a parade leading an inauguration in the priest's underwear, singing a song not about him, but about the king of glory who reigns and rules in majesty. He is the king of glory, the Lord Almighty. Whoo! How about that? That had to be a parade. Dang! I'm just picturing that, the dancing, the priest's underwear, the song. Here's what I want you to see from this. This king's leadership is marked for mostly with his followership. I'm going to say that again. It's his followership that's marking David's leadership. 
I think we need some followership discussions. I think we need some followership seminars. I think we need some followership retreats. I think we need some, right? David's like, hey, his, follow, his wholehearted followership of Yahweh, the King of Kings, is marking now his very visible leadership. It's not that he doesn't have a leadership position. He has one, and he holds it for 30 plus years. But at the core of it, it's his followership. That's what explains. Can you picture the parade leaders and the cabinet members who organized all this? Say, who came up with this idea? What's the king doing wearing that? Who picked that song? And then he leads the procession to the town square. He leads them to the city center. Now you think, what's so big about that? I read it in verse 17. He leads them to what? I put it in your notes. It's a It's a tent. This is called the Tabernacle of David. Here's a picture of it. The Tabernacle of David, the Tent of David. The entire parade winds itself to a finale endpoint of a tent. You got to be kidding me. This, don't think glamorous tent. Think, yeah, like that. Kind of a makeshift pop-up tent. It had to be fairly large because it was going to house for mostly the Ark of the Covenant. So David said, Go get the ark on the outskirts of town. He leads the parade in a worship gathering in the priest's tidy whities He picks a Psalm 24. He leads the procession to the tent of God, which would house the ark of God to display the presence of God for the glory of God to center the people of God. Woo! I'm telling you, church. Right? You see this? Are you with me? Have I lost anybody yet? If you start counting lights, come back, Okay? This is the centering point of a transition in leadership that shifts the nation. And could you just imagine, can you imagine now, all right? Those of you who hold high levels positions of leadership, we have some even in the political arenas like Jay Kenworthy and others who hold a tremendous leadership and influence in all kinds of places around here. Can you imagine when the highest office in the land gets his leadership cabinet together for their first like, Jay, what do they call it? Like, first order of business or whatever they call, right? The first, those are important times, right? The first things you're going to do when you take office to kind of set your agenda, to deliver to your constituency, right? And David says, hey, here's a first order of business is, this is the idea. We've got a tent in the city center. We've got a parade. I've got an outfit, and I've got a song. Let's go. I picture the military, okay, the joint chiefs of staff around him. The military guys that are around his cabinet, can you just picture him? Um, Your Majesty, I don't know if you've tuned in yet, but we've got a lot of hostile people. Like, there are hostile groups all around us. Like, we probably need to beef up our military. Like, we probably need to do something with our troops here. Like, are you sure this is your first order of business? A worship parade that ends in a tent with the ark. Are you sure? And David says, oh, I'm more than sure. This is going, David says, this is actually going to be the centering order of business for his entire 33-year reign. How about that? This is going to be it. It's David says, no, put a prayer tent right in the center of the people of God, right in town square. And it's going to house the ark. Go get the ark. It's been away. It's been on the outskirts. It's been on the periphery. It's been away too long. Get the ark of God and invite the people of God to come and encounter the presence of God. That's what's the hope for this nation. And for 42 years, 
under Saul's leadership, there wasn't any sight of it all. And I want you to see like David probably when he steps to the office, he's like, well, what distinguishes us, the Israelites, from all the other ites in the land? Remember all the nations around the Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, Jebusites, all the ites, all these other ites. What distinguishes the Israelites from not just being one more ite? Here's what David says. I know what distinguishes it. We got to get the ark of God, which represents the presence of God, put it in the tent of God so the people of God can encounter the glory of God. What's going to separate this group of people from every other nation is this step. And so give me the tidy whities from the priests. Give me Psalm 24 as the song. Give me the parade route. And this is order of business number one, two, and three. This is a leader whose leadership is marked with followership. And now you know why. <laughs> now you know why the New Testament commentary on King David, which sometimes we read this and go, but Pastor Eric, there's some like cringe moments in David. Yeah, I didn't say he's perfect. He's human, just like all of us. We sang a song about what do you do with your brokenness and what do you do with your poor choices? What do you do with the piles of ash that we run into? Well, David wasn't perfect, but one of the things the New Testament commentary on David is the disposition of his heart when confronted with things that were out of line went Godward. In his brokenness, he went to God. In his sin, he went to God. In his waywardness, he went to God. So the New Testament summarizes David's life this way. Look, Acts 13, 22. Here's how Luke commenting on this transition. He says, after removing Saul, God made David their king. He testified concerning him. Here's God's commentary on David. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Young people, children in here, students in here, I'd like you to consider that as a vision of a legacy for your life. I can't think of a more significant thing to be said at the end of the run. Whether you're 97 going on 98 or whether you're 7 going on 8, wouldn't it be amazing to have it said of you and me, hey, you know what? We did everything the Lord wanted done. We did it. He didn't say he did it perfectly. He didn't say there weren't places but that's the commentary on, do you see why David then is distinguished? Why is he called a man after his own heart? Because he had King Saul. Remember, Saul was the people's choice. We got a whole nother sermon on that one, right? So the majority clamoring for a king went to Saul, and then David was God's choice. And why did he pick David? Because, and remember, he was the eighth in line. Remember, they paraded his seven older brothers. Surely he's going to pick one of the seven older brothers. David wasn't even invited to the banquet. He was out in the fields tending the flock, smelled like manure. He's out there tending them. And they said, hold the banquet. Go get the eighth son of Jesse. He's my, he's the one I pick. Because there's something cultivated deep inside of David called followership that was going to embody and mark his leadership. And it forever changed the trajectory of the nation of Israel. Perhaps now we understand when we read in our New Testaments when it says, Jesus Christ, the son of David. Hmm. No mention of Saul in that line. Because David knew the distinguishing mark of the people of God was always supposed to be the presence of God, embodied by the ark of God in the tent of God. And he puts it at the city center, and he says, now, open up those, open up those flaps on that tent. Open them up. And in the midst of this first order of business, he appoints 288 worship leaders. You can get those details in Chronicles. Yeah, the Solomons will be excited about that. 288. So he does 
after some personnel assignments, the military leaders had to be discouraged when his first personnel move was 288 worship leaders. And that's probably when they were raising their hand, hey, King, uh, your majesty, could we get a few more, you know, chariots and horses and things on the outskirts of town? Nope. And he appointed the 288 worship leaders to steward the worship and prayer going on in the tent of God in city center. They would like, they, they believe, scholars believe it was 24-7 prayer inside the tent of God. And the 288 worship leaders, like musicians and singers and such, they were the ones like spreading out the hours of the week across the 200. There were large groups of people who would come, and they opened up the flaps of the tent, and it was like a precursor to what Jesus was going to embody in the New Testament. It's really the only window. It's like old, it's like in the Old Testament, it's like a window into what New Testament was going to accomplish when Jesus dies and the curtain of the temple is torn in two and there's direct access to the presence of God. David's leadership foreshadows it. When he puts the tent at the center, he opens the flaps, he appoints the worship leaders, and he opens it up and he says, now anyone from anywhere can come and encounter the presence of God, for the glory of God, for this is the hope of the nation of God. This is David. And so two points bridging to our lives today. I put these in your notes. When a nation is drifting, God uses leaders who are worshipers to turn things around. So listen, from Frank's words to Many of you who've lived many decades of your life, as a nation, as a country, we've gone through a lot. From world wars to civil wars to uprisings to great depressions to industrial revolutions to all. We've gone through and endured a lot. But here, one constant has always been of the United States of America was that at its core, in God we trust. That's always been the centering reality. What's been the ray of light shining on the canvas of whatever darkness we were encountering from World War I generation to World War II generation to this current generation? What's always been is that in the founding documents of our nation is that this country was going to be God-centered and biblically grounded. That's always been. That's not different in 2023. That's the way it's supposed to be. And so when our nation, who I would argue we probably are a little more going down what was going on in Saul's reign, and we need, which is why I said this, the first point is, when God wants to transition it from Saul to David, he takes a leader who's marked with followership, whose heart is devoted to worship first, and he says, I'm going to get a leader, and I'm going to get this nation turned around. So I wrote a few things down in my notes, and when we've begun to drift, God's looking for a leader, says, go get the ark of God that's been pushed to the edges, and he picks a leader to turn it around. And I said, these are some notes I put down. I said, it's time for leaders to step forward who are willing to dance before the Lord with all their might. Where are the leaders willing to dance? I'll withhold the tidy whities You don't need that image in your head right now. Okay. It's time for leaders who lift up their voice, sound the trumpet to bring the presence of God back to the city center. It's leaders. It's time for leaders who won't take off the linen ephod when the cultural pressures are turned up. It's up for leaders. So when someone says to the pastor, hey, pastor, your messages are a little too outdated. They need to be brought up to the times. The pastors need to step forward and say the only thing we have to say is Genesis to Revelation. And it's to God that you must deal. 
You can fire all the arrows at the messengers, fine, but at the end of the day, it's the Word of God you have to be confronted with. And it's the responsibility of the leaders of God to hold the Word of God before the people of God. And you hold me to that, and you hold all of us in leadership to that. And as you've heard me say many times from this platform, young people, as you shove off into this next chapter of your life, if you don't encounter a body of Christ in a local church where you are not hearing consistently, open your Bibles too, just move on. Just move on. And unfortunately, there are fewer and fewer. But by God's grace, he will continue to keep a remnant that will hold. It'll be about leaders. You tracking me? Leaders. I put the next note. This is what I wrote. It's time for leaders with humility and honesty to confess this. We are not God, and we're not very good at pretending like we are. Ouch, I'm going to say that one again, right? It's time right now for leaders with humility and honesty to say, we're not God, and we're not very good at pretending like we are, and it's time to elevate wholehearted followership to our most influential positions of leadership. I believe that's the cultural moment we're in in 2023. It's time, church. It's time. And it's, hey, and there's a whole room full here and a bunch joining online and a bunch of young ones downstairs and a bunch of kids in the loft, from students to adults, from young to old, right? It's time. It's time for, right, what this? When the nation is drifting, God taps the shoulder of leaders who were marked by followership and wholehearted worship to turn things around. That's the moment we're in. And so you want fuel for your prayer? This is how we're going to lean in in prayer, which then leads me to my final point. When the church prioritizes presence, the nation gets renewal. That's a line from Tyler Stanton. He's a pastor in Portland, Oregon. Do you think he's had some challenging years? And Tyler Stanton wrote this. The modern church's best kept secret is this. Hear this. We believe in productivity, not prayer. We believe in solid programs, above average teaching, and yet another worship album release. That's success, right? Hear this line. The church's underground atheism in our time is that we will busy ourselves with almost anything except prayer. Personalities, programs, and productivity have pushed pastoring, prayer, and presence to the margins, which the net result of that has been self-reliance is the new rallying cry. You just do you and bend reality. You ask everybody's reality to bend to you, and busyness and burnout are the new normal. And into that space, church, Jesus calls out to us today, there is another way, and here's the space he calls out to us in. Bring the, <laughs> bring the ark of God back to the city center and put it in the tent of God. Put it at the center of the people of God. Prioritize my presence over production and productivity and programs. Or in the language of Jesus in Matthew 21, it's time to make my house a house of prayer for the nations. Because when you prioritize church, presence in the church, you get renewal in the nation. And if you're burdened like I am about renewal in the nation, then you start presence in the church. And that it's the people of God saying, you know what? <clears throat> We're not settling for the ark on the outskirts of town. We're not. No, 
the presence of God, manifest presence. You say, well, Eric, God's present everywhere. That's omnipresence. Of course, God's present everywhere. But there's something about the manifest presence of God. That's what the ark represented. There was a manifest presence in the tent of God by the ark of God that distinguished the people of God from all the other ites in the land. What is it for Jesus' church right now? It's not going to be about worship albums and new productivities and programs. and That's not going to be it. What's going to be the distinguishing mark? It's got to be the capital P presence of God. Manifest with the people of God when we gather in his name. That's got to be it, church. That's the distinguishing mark. And if we want to see renewal in the nation, it's got to be prioritized presence in the church. That's where we're at. And so you want to know what's on our hearts as leaders right now? This is what's on our hearts. You want to know what we're praying about? This is what we're praying for. You want to know the, the journey ahead for us? This is it. And I don't think it's just our church. I think it's when I call, chat with some other pastor. This, listen, if you've watched the steady stream of the unraveling of some of the previous, what was seen as kind of like church culture, like in the United States, go this way. The latest was the Hillsong documentary series. I mean, if you haven't if that doesn't send something through the core of you to say, hey, we got to step back, that's a great picture of what happens when the ark gets on the outside of town. And then what happens at the city center? No, it's time for leaders. So the two points today, right? When, God, when the nation's drifting, he taps leaders who are first followers, whose followership's going to mark their leadership. Where are the leaders? Where are they? I believe we've got an army of them here. And our commitment as a local church is to pour into a generation, not only younger growing up, but those of you older. You've heard me say many times from here, your most fruitful and productive decades for the kingdom of God, number one decade is your 60s, number two is your 50s, and third is your 70s. And some of you right now, you're staring at your most fruitful and productive decades of your life. And I would say to you, for such a time as this. So worship team, come on back up. I got one final story, and then we're going to wrap up with a song that I think embodies the message today. Rodney Gypsy Smith, you've heard me talk about, if you've been around Eagle for a while, I brought his name up a few different times. He was born in a tent outside of London, never educated formally. Gave his heart to Christ, got radically saved, converted, just gave, he said, you know what, I'm going to give my whole life to you, Jesus, and he started preaching for Jesus, he started traveling around Europe, and he eventually, he eventually makes 45 trips across the Atlantic to the United States, kind of a mini Billy Graham type ministry in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and Gypsy Smith, as he was called, Rodney, but he called Gypsy Smith, he eventually lectured at Harvard. He never had a degree himself, and he actually was asked by two sitting presidents to come to the White House and consult. So he was a little bit older, and some young pastors got around Gypsy Smith, and they said, hey, Gypsy, we want to know, like, how can we be used by God to the degree that you've been used by God in your lifetime? And I put this in your notes. Here's what he said. Go home, lock yourself in your room, kneel down in the middle of the floor, and with a piece of chalk, draw a circle around yourself. And there on your knees, pray fervently and brokenly that God would start a revival within that chalk circle. Church, we want to see renewal in the nation? Right here. Starts right here. 
we draw a chalk circle around our heart and we get on our knees before God and say, God, you got to bring, you got to bring revival right here. We got to get the ark from the outskirts of town. We got to get back to the city center. We got to see the presence of God. We're the people of God. So renewal out there starts revival right here. And then Gypsy went on to tell the story that he was finishing a lecture in his latter years, and there was a bunch of teenagers at this lecture. Well, she was always encouraged to have conversation with teenagers, and they hung around after the meeting. And one of the teenagers said to him from his message, oh, Gypsy, you're just dreaming. You're just dreaming. He was painting a picture about what could be. You're just dreaming. And he said he got on a train later that night, and he couldn't shake that phrase. You're just dreaming. And he got out a pen and a piece of paper, and he wrote a song that he called Not Dreaming. Here's some lyrics. The world says I'm dreaming, but I know tis Jesus who saves me from bondage and sin's guilty stain. He is my lover, my savior, my master. Tis he who has freed me from guilt and its pain. Let me dream on if I'm dreaming. Let me dream on, my sins are gone. Night turns to dawn. Love's light is beaming. So if I'm dreaming, let me dream on. Let's pray together. Jesus, these are challenging and sobering times to be alive in the world. And here we are for such a time as this. Thank you for a leader like King David who would step into his moment definitely go against the grain of what the culture of that day was going to press him to do. And so I'm praying for us, Lord, would you just raise up a generation of Davidic-like, Jesus-like leaders who will lead and rule in righteousness, who will be marked with wholehearted followership and all the leadership you entrust to them. God, empower us by your Spirit. And then would you bring revival in our hearts we just draw a chalk circle right now around our own heart and say, Lord, bring revival. We want to prioritize presence in your church and ask you to bring renewal to the nation. Would you do that? You see where each one is. You know what each one's carrying today. And there's some pretty big things going on in a lot of lives. May this be a little bit of a, a tent of God moment. We pull back the tent. We open up the flaps on the tent. And we come now by the power of your spirit and the ark of the new covenant and King Jesus, outpouring of the spirit of God. Would you minister that we would encounter you, that we'd be marked with the distinguishing mark of our lives, of our family, of our church. May it be the presence of God with us as a people of God to see some things shift that we long to see shift. Call out to you. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you that you never give up on us. Thank you you keep pursuing us. Commission us 
To that end, we pray in Jesus' holy name.